And uh, we're looking at verses 1 to 8 of Isaiah 54 today. We're going to spend the next three weeks in this chapter. I was thinking after spending so much of this past year in the Sermon on the Mount where we were challenged by Jesus and we were probed by Jesus to grow and to change, that it'd be good to step back and spend some time feeling the encouragement of God's love and grace, which surrounds and enfolds that challenging that Jesus puts to us, to our lives and to our hearts. And um, that's what Isaiah 54 is all about, as we're going to see. Some of you have probably uh, seen the movie Shawshank Redemption. It's a raw, gritty, heart-gripping story about a man named Andy who has experienced in the movie the most tragic of reversals of fortune. He was a successful banker, a married man, and in a short period of time, he discovers that his wife is cheating on him, and then his wife is murdered, and he's accused of the murder, and he's sentenced to life in prison. And so he goes from married man and successful banker to betrayed husband, widower, unjustly condemned to one of America's most hard and notorious prisons. From riches to to rags, with shattered dreams, broken heart. And and this kind of reversal of of fortunes is is one of the hardest life experiences for anyone to have to go through. I mean, picture a, a successful Fortune 500 executive having lost it all now in a soup kitchen line. Or picture a famous celebrated pop idol having lost it all now busking for quarters in a subway station. Or or picture a young woman, thank you, marrying the the man of her dreams only to find herself very shortly afterwards rejected, divorced, with little hope that she'll ever find love again. These are the sorts of experiences that today's passage is addressed to. And I know some of you relate to this sort of experience. That you've had dreams shattered. That you've experienced rejection and and deep heart pain. You've had hopes crushed. Hopes that you had. You know the the deep disappointments and the, the hurt and the betrayal and the despair. Well, this is also what God's people are feeling. This is where they're at as they're being addressed in today's passage by Isaiah. Because Isaiah 54 is a prophecy addressed to God's people in exile. They were once a proud and prosperous nation. They uh, have since, though, been conquered. And they've been abused and victimized by their Babylonian invaders and oppressors. They've seen loved ones slaughtered and they have survived to have the memories and perhaps they're not sure if they're the lucky ones or the unlucky ones to have survived. They've been dragged away now into exile. They're ripped from their homes, from their lives, from their communities. They're taken to a foreign, unfamiliar, hostile land where they're at the mercy of a foreign power, a foreign people. And in today's passage, God says to them, and as we'll see to us, I know and I understand how you feel. You know, there's no greater expression of empathy than, than for someone to be able to describe your situation, to say, it must feel like this, and 
they, they express it better than you could express it themse- yourself. And you're like, wow, they really get it. They understand I'm, I'm not in this alone, feeling this way alone. And that's what God does here for his people. God does it using a metaphor. God says, this is how it's been like for you, my people. It's been like a young woman going through rejection and divorce and barrenness without children. And here we have to make allowance for the culture of that time and part of the patriarchy of that culture was, and of the systems of that day was that women had very limited roles and options in life. For a woman to survive and thrive at that time in that culture, she had to marry and she had to have children. Marriage was the only way for her to have status and security, for her to have financial provision, because she gained these from having a husband in that culture. And bearing children was the only way she had to maintain that status and provision, because a wife who did not produce children could be legally divorced, and often she would be. Further, she would be considered a failure as a person if she couldn't have children. In that religious culture, someone whom she would have been someone who was, was perceived by others that God had rejected her and punished her. Because if she couldn't have children, people reasoned there must be something wrong with her. God must have turned against her and rejected her. In other words, she must be a wicked person. She must deserve it, is the way people would look at her. Further, since children were people's retirement plans back then, to have no children likely meant poverty at the end of her life. It meant a life of loneliness and a life of destitution that she had to look forward to. Look at the phrases used to describe her in this passage. Verse 4, afraid, put to shame, disgrace, humiliated, shame of your youth, reproach of your widowhood. Verse 6, like a wife deserted and distressed in spirit who married young only to be rejected. Verse 7, abandoned. This description here is just about the most pitiful, tragic, worst-case scenario that anyone could experience in that culture. And I know some of you here, you relate to some of it. You, You know what it feels like. And God says to you now, to and to this people in exile then, This is what God says. I know that's how you feel. I feel it with you. I really do understand what you're going through. This is the first thing that we learn about God in this passage. God really does understand. God understands our pain. God understands our struggle. God understands our our hurt and our deep disappointment. God says, I I know it feels like this. It feels like rejection, right? Like abandonment from those who should have loved you. It feels like dreams shattered. It feels like hopes crushed. Like disappointment and despair. Like shame. Like disgrace. Like you think, what's wrong with me? Am I worthless? Am I not worth anything? God says, I understand. I understand. 
and, and to God's people who felt this way in, in that time of exile, and for us who may feel this way today, God has a message. In this passage, it's a wonderful message of good news. Here's the good news. We can rejoice. We can sing out because our fortunes are going to change. God is breathing hope into our situation. Why? Because because here's the second thing that we learn about God in this passage. God's love, God's favor, God's grace is far greater than any punishment or judgment that we may have felt or experienced from God. You see, for God's people at that time, it wasn't just chance or bad luck that landed them in exile. It was their own unfaithfulness. It was their own rejection of God and their own rebellion. And so God had disciplined them quite strongly. God had chosen to express God's anger toward them to allow them to face harsh consequences. That's not to say for us today that that every bad thing that happens to us is a result of our sin or our doing something wrong. It's far from that simple. Often when, when we suffer, we don't know why. We go through what we go through. But it's also true that often when we are struggling and we are suffering, we can't help but ask, did I do something wrong? Has God abandoned me? Is God mad at me? Right? We ask that. And the answer might be no. But but regardless, here's the message in today's passage. Whatever the reason is for what we're experiencing, Whether it's God's anger, God's discipline, God's judgment, or whether it's not that at all, here's the good news. God's love, God's favor is far greater than God's judgment. Verse 7, for a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. With everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you. In other words, listen to this. If God's judgment and discipline are measured in minutes and hours, then God's compassion and love are measured in years and centuries. That's the good news here. And so God encourages his his downcast, disheartened people. He says, get ready to sing. Get ready to rejoice. Because guess what? My favor is coming. I'm about to restore your fortunes. I'm going to make up to you all that you lost and more. Let's look at how God expresses it again using this image of of a young woman who married young only to be rejected and abandoned by her husband. And so she finds herself childless and single again and and in the metaphor, it's not totally clear if, if she's been rejected because she can't have children or, or if she can't have children because her husband has rejected her and she's alone. But either way, for a woman in her culture, this is her greatest nightmare. Rejected, abandoned by her husband, who should love her and protect her and provide for her. And she has no children to, to love or to look after in her old age. And if she's in fact barren, if she can't have children in that culture, then no one else will marry her. And so she's alone, she's impoverished, she's ashamed, she's disgraced, and here's what God has to say to her. Sing, barren woman. You who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, 
you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tents. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. What words of comfort and hope, right? Notice how God even risks looking like the bad guy here. As if God was a callous, unfaithful husband kicking his young bride to the curb. Now, now we know that's not God's way and that's not God's character, but God says, I understand how you might feel that way. But whatever you might feel, however you might look at it, God says, that's all about to change, all that nightmare, because I am receiving you with love. I am taking you to myself. I am providing you with children. I'm going to cause you to flourish and to flower and to be fruitful. I'm giving you everything you ever hoped for. Why? Because in Israel's case, though I was angry, God says to them, though I disciplined you, my love and my compassion are so much greater than my judgment. Do you know that about God? Do you know that about God? We, we know God, on the one hand, has moral standards, that God calls us to account for them. God hates sin and evil. God judges those who sin. We also know, on the other hand, that God is loving and gracious and merciful. And so to have an accurate view of God, we realize that we have to hold both of those aspects of God's character in tension. Judgment, discipline on the one hand, and love, grace, and mercy on the other. But which is greater in the end? Which of those two? Which gets the upper hand, love or justice? Well, here Isaiah makes it clear. It's God's mercy and love and compassion. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Grace triumphs over condemnation. Love triumphs over punishment. And that's what the cross is all about, right? In fact, let's step back and and let's notice where we are in the book of Isaiah when we're in chapter 54 here. We're immediately after Isaiah 53. Are you familiar with that chapter, some of you? It's the clearest prophecy in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. Let me just, to remind us, read a a couple verses from Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds 
they are healed. We are healed. It's because of that, what, what we read in Isaiah 53, that we have what we now have in Isaiah 54. It's as an outflow of what Jesus has done on the cross, suffering in our place, on our behalf, giving himself for us, that has paved the way for the amazing invitation we now read in Isaiah 54 in today's passage. God has done everything necessary through Jesus on the cross, through the suffering of Jesus, to now welcome us back, to put punishment behind us, and to receive us with singing and rejoicing. In light of the cross, God's judgment is like a passing bad dream, fading away in the bright, fresh morning of God's warm, inviting love. So let me ask those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. Is this your conception of God? Is this your experience of relationship with God? Are you aware of how God's love is so much greater than God's judgment for you? For example, when you recognize that you mess up and that you've fallen short, maybe you didn't spend enough time praying or reading your Bible like you meant to, or, or maybe you, you told yourself you were going to uh, overcome that bad habit or that character flaw, and, and yet you find yourself slipping into it again and hanging on to it. And so you feel guilty, maybe, maybe you feel defeated, and so your head hangs a little lower. Or maybe you feel that there's a, a gray cloud o- over your head and God is frowning on you and you, you can't look God in the eye. In fact, maybe you want to sort of crawl into a corner out of God's sight for a while to, to grovel for a while in, in your failure and your unworthiness and your beating yourself up. Or maybe you think God can't use you the way God uses other people. You can't enjoy a relationship with God the way other people seem to because you're too ordinary or, or you're too insignificant or, or you've done too many bad things or you have a secret struggle that nobody knows about or a secret past that you don't want anyone to find out about. Here's what today's text says to you. For a brief moment, God says, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God's mercy, God's love is so much greater than God's judgment. Let's think how this amazing promise, this amazing announcement of good news has played itself out in history. Remember, it was originally addressed to God's people in exile some 2,500 years ago. God promised them More are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back, for you will spread out to the right and the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. The the picture here is is of God's people as an ancient Middle Eastern tent-dwelling mother, and she needs a bigger tent. She needs a bigger house because... Of all the kids that she has born, a family, a community she's become, 
surrounded by love and by hope and by future. God's people, the the picture is of them as, as no longer a few survivors in exile struggling to survive, but now a people again, growing and thriving and multiplying. And so we have to ask ourselves, how has this been fulfilled in history? Well, look at you and me sitting here today. Who could imagine for those exiles far away in Babylon in what today is part of Iraq, homeless, just a few, um, it, it seemed struggling to survive as God's people. Who would have guessed that today there would be people like us who are their spiritual children, who've been adopted into their family, God's family, and that there are people like us all around the world? Who would have guessed? You know, of the over 7 billion people in the world today, a third of them, 2.5 billion, are Christian. Now, granted, some of those might be only culturally Christian, but that's still a lot of people, a lot of children. People scattered all over the world, billions of them. Enlarge your tent, God tells the woman. Imagine being a struggling exile in Babylon so long that that you think there's just a few of you left and you're wondering if God's people are even going to survive. You're not a nation. You don't have a place to call home. You're just hanging on, a displaced immigrant, and it feels like God has abandoned you. Could you ever imagine that one day God would have so many people, your descendants, all over the world? And not just Israelites, but Americans and Europeans and Africans and Indians and Filipinos and Chinese and Koreans and on and on it goes. God has been faithful to his people, to his promise of mercy and love and compassion. And guess what? It's not because we as God's people have all been so good and so godly and so upright all the time. We haven't been such paragons of virtue and faithfulness, right? No, God's people have grown and multiplied because of God's love and God's grace and God's faithfulness, undeserved though it is. Poured out, heaped up abundantly. God has done this, not us. All of us, God's people, are are children of, of this barren woman in our passage, in In all of our numbers, and all of our variety, and all of our cultural diversity, we're all expressions of, we're all proof of God's abundant, lavish love, which is so much greater than God's judgment. And so how are we to respond to this amazing promise of good news? To this assurance that that God's love triumphs over God's judgment? Well, this passage calls us to respond in two kinds of ways. Uh, And these are two attitudes. These are two attributes which you'll find in any group of people who really understand the gospel, who, who really understand the good news of God's love through Jesus Christ. One is rejoicing. A people like this will be a joyful people, a people who celebrate, a people who are grateful. Verse 1, listen to the call of encouragement here. Sing, burst into song, shout for joy. 
why do we sing songs on Sunday morning? And I know some of us are more demonstrative and jump up and down than, than others. I'm on the reserve side, but I do have joy in my heart when I remember this good news. Because we have a lot to sing about. We have much to rejoice in. I know we don't always feel it. But that's why we're, we're here, to remind ourselves of all that God has done for us, all that God is for us, to remind ourselves that in Jesus Christ, we've experienced God's love and that it's so much greater than God's judgment. And so we sing and we rejoice. And then the second response this passage calls for is making room. People who really understand the gospel who really understand God's grace and God's love, they have a generous, wide-open, hospitable attitude. Listen again to verse 2, again using the analogy of a tent a growing family is going to live in. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. This is describing a certain kind of attitude here, isn't it? A certain kind of expectation, an expectation that God is in the business of bringing about new births and of multiplying his people. And I know we haven't seen much of it in recent years in Westchester County. It feels like a spiritual dead zone, like the climate is dark here and that the spiritual soil is hard. But do we know, do we believe that God's love and mercy are great? That, that God's desire is, is to heap grace on others, other people who don't deserve it. Do we believe this good news? Do we share this good news? Do, do we have an attitude of welcome, an attitude of making room, a wider welcome in our hearts, in our relationships, in our building? New birth is hard, right? Ask Sarah or Carrie. It's hard work. It's messy. Babies upset our routines. They, they challenge our, our desires and our priorities. But are we open? Do, do we welcome in messy and immature newcomers? <laughs> do we have that kind of heart and that kind of spirit? We will if we understand God's grace. That God's love is meant not just for us to be hoarded, but it's meant to be spread. It's meant to be shared. Let me close with a story, which I think um, captures this spirit well. You, you probably know it, but it's worth remembering. It's a story behind the song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon on the, Around the Old Oak Tree. It's written by a man who's in prison. He, um, it's written to his love back home. He's ruined his life. He's proved not to be dependable, not to be a provider. And he understands that she may have moved on without him. Um, she may not want him with her anymore. But he's getting out of prison, and he's taking the bus to her house, and he wants a sign to know if he should get off the bus or he should keep on going. And here's a song. I'm coming home, I've done my time, and now I've got to know what is and isn't mine. If you received my letter telling you I'd soon be free, then you'll know just what to do if you still want me. Tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. It's been three long years. Do you still want me? If I don't see a ribbon round the old oak tree, 
I'll stay on the bus. Forget about us. Put the blame on me. Bus driver, please look for me, because I couldn't bear to see what I might see. I'm really still in prison, and my love, she holds the key. A simple yellow ribbon's what I need to set me free. And I wrote and told her, please, tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. Now the whole darn bus is cheering, and I can't believe I see a hundred yellow ribbons yes. <laughs> round the old oak tree. A hundred ribbons. That's what God is giving us this morning in this passage. In case you're wondering how God feels about you, that's what he's tying for us this morning on the oak tree. Let's sing about his love.